Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them hearts and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. We shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I say, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. You remember that in ancient times the disciples of the Lord Jesus came to the Lord and said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And we still have a lot to learn about prayer. We are still in uh, the same need and condition that the Lord would instruct us in prayer. There are lessons to be gleaned from our text, and this will not be our last lesson in prayer. Remember where we are. John is here receiving something of a spiritual view of the church held forth to him in in figures, signs, and symbols, in the imagery of the tabernacle and of the temple. We've been focusing on uh, verse 8, where it is said that the four living creatures and the 24 elders have hearts and bowls full of incense. 
in the hearts, we see that their hearts are fitted by grace to praise God. We will turn our attention to this more specifically next week, if the Lord wills. We have been uh, focusing upon these bowls of incense, that their hearts have been inclined and disposed to prayer. We are now in our third lesson concerning this, and our first lesson arose immediately from this text, that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God and worthy of our worship. He is, uh, together with the Father and the Spirit, the proper object of our prayers. We had occasion to address um, a mistake that many make in the inasmuch as they assert that the Father is really the only proper object and recipient of prayer. And although we frequently address our prayers to the Heavenly Father, that is never to be to the exclusion of the Son and of the Spirit. Here we see the Son is uh, directly and immediately in view as the four living creatures and the 24 elders offer their prayers. So remember in general that the triune God is the proper object of worship. And when we apply that to prayer, that general principle, we say that the triune God is the proper object and recipient of our prayers. Last week, we began to glean lessons from the incense service itself. In recent days, I have had large occasion to delight myself in the study of these ancient things and to endeavor to glean their lessons. First, we considered the materials that were used in this ancient service. It took place inside the holy place. You remember that the uh, tabernacle of God, which was basically a very large and beautiful tent, God had pitched his tent in the midst of his people. That grand tent was surrounded by a large courtyard under the open heaven. That courtyard had basically two things within it. There were other things, but the most important things were the brazen altar where uh, fire offerings were offered unto God and a great big brazen laver used for ceremonial ablutions or washings of the priests. Once you uh, passed into that tabernacle itself, that tabernacle had two grand divisions. It had uh, within it the Holy of Holies. Only one man, and that only one time in the year, was allowed to pass beyond that curtain or veil. The high priest. And that only with the blood of the atonement on the day of the atonement. We'll talk more about this uh, service a little bit later on in the uh, sermon. But we are, for our incense service, in the holy place. And this holy place had three uh, principal objects of furniture. On your right hand, as you entered, you would see a table. This was the table of showbread. And upon it, twelve loaves of bread. On your left hand, you would have seen the golden candlestick, the menorah, with its seven lamps and lights. And immediately before you, you would have 
the golden altar of incense. Remember, we described this altar in some uh, detail. It was made out of a wood called shittim wood. Hard to identify with absolute certainty, although it was probably something like cypress or acacia. Uh, no doubt used for its great durability. This was an altar that was going to be used for a long time. And this needed to last. It was covered all over with gold. But if you remember, we noted that all things considered, it was surprisingly small. Its top was square, uh, each side being about a cubit in length. That's only 18 inches, or roughly from my elbow to the tip of my finger, each side. So it's a very small uh, altar, only about three feet tall about the height of my youngest child, so probably not even to the waist of, uh, of a man. So uh, relatively short and relatively small, it had four large horns arising out. We talked about the particular significance of each one of these facets, but we can say this with great confidence, that this was meant to represent the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught the principle that it's the altar that sanctifies the gift. And what is it that makes the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and his intercessory work so precious in the eyes of the Father? What is it that gives it its value? It's the value of his person. And he, we might even be able to say a bit more narrowly the value of his divine person, infinitely precious in the eyes of the Father. The incense, uh, we considered in some detail these aromatic spices, but basically that's what they were. These spices put off a very uh, wonderful and soothing aroma. They were put together with great care according to the art of a, an apothecary or a professional perfume maker. He would compound these things. And the final product is described as pure. In other words, only the very best of these substances would do. And holy. The scent that was put off by this incense was singular. There was nothing else like it in the whole world. The significance of this is uh, also relatively plain to us. It's an image of Christ's intercession on behalf of his people. His people pray, but their prayer is always mixed with sin. Considered in and of itself, as our confession says, it could not pass the severity of God's judgment. Your prayer, if considered alone, could never pass the severity of that judgment or be acceptable in the sight of God. It needs to be mixed with something else and something better. With a perfume or an incense, the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we looked, if you remember, uh, galbanum, as some of the ancients described it, uh, uh, had a displeasing scent. And some interpreters have looked at that as being our portion. But mixed with the other things, 
It had an altogether pleasing scent. And so it is with our prayers. If they stand alone, they are like galbanum unsavory. But when taken up by the Lord Jesus Christ and mediated through his intercession, they are pleasing to the Heavenly Father. And inasmuch as this incense was singular and not to be used for anything else, we learn a very important principle that only his intercession will do. There's no other intercession that can win acceptance for us. So very much uh, as we do in the consideration of the sacraments, first we can we consider the elements and then we consider the action. This morning, I wanted to turn our attention to the service itself or the action and its uh, various aspects. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. And as we do this, Try not to forget the four living creatures and the 24 elders who are said to have bowls of this precious incense in their hands as representatives of their prayers. The book of Exodus chapter 30, beginning with verse 7, we've had the description already in this chapter of the altar itself. Later on in the chapter, we will have the description of the incense. But now we have the service itself, the action. Verse 7. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lambs, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lambs at even, he shall burn incense upon it. A perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. He shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. Neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. First, we are reminded of the place of this action. That was given to us already earlier in the chapter. We are in the holy place. We are before the veil that led to the holy of holies. And you remember, this was the place of communion. Moses was told that he could approach the Lord here. And that the Lord would meet with him above the cherubims. So the Lord would be on one side of the veil and Moses on the other. But that God would meet with him, speak with him, commune with him in this place. And remember that uh, with, with the exception of Moses himself, that great prophet of God, only the priests entered into the holy place. No one else did, not even the Levites. The Levites were only uh, to come near to that place when it was time to pack it up and move it away. And only then after the priests had gone in and uh, covered and removed all of the holy furniture and vessels. So this is the place of communion and this is the place of priests. And no one else was allowed to uh, approach. 
indeed, uh, a terrible sentence of death if anyone else dared to make an approach unto that place. God would kill them. So this is a very serious matter. The agent or minister in this service is, of course, the priest. In our text, Aaron is mentioned specifically, but he is a representative here for the entire priesthood. So it says Aaron shall burn, but it, it's really all of the priests. In First Chronicles chapter 23, you don't need to turn there, but the text reads, Aaron was separated that he should sanctify the most holy things, he and his sons forever, to burn incense before the Lord, to minister unto him, and to bless in his name forever. First Chronicles 23.13 So here we um, get further light that Aaron is addressed here, not just personally, but as a representative of the entire priesthood. This is a service that would continue for generations and other priests would be involved. Uh, if you will remember... And this brings us closer to our text in Revelation chapter 25. They ministered by 24 courses. So all of the priests were divided up into 24 grand courses during the time of David. And they would come up by turns and perform the service of incense. Here, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. If you're interested in uh, further study, you might want to look at those chapters in First Chronicles, chapters 23 to about 28 or so. You get the division of the priests and Levites into the 24 courses and then the various duties assigned to them. I include the 28th chapter because it is said that all of this is done by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But here we have an example of this very thing. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We have the narrative here of Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. If I might pause, pause here. Go back to First Chronicles chapter 24, verse 10. There's the course of Abijah. This is the same course. So this is a, a, a method of discharging this service that is about a thousand years old at this point. And they're still doing it the same way a thousand years later. And there is still the course of Abijah or Abijah going up to tend to the service of the temple. And his wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before the Lord, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God, in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without 
at the time of incense. You see here that the people of God did understand the significance of this service. While the priest goes in according to his course to burn incense, what are all the people doing? They are outside, gathered around, performing the spiritual substance that was being illustrated in the service. They are praying and they are trusting upon Messiah to come to mediate that prayer and make it acceptable in the sight of God. Interestingly, it is in this place, this place of secret communion with God, that the Lord is going to meet with Zacharias through the agency of an angel and tell him of uh, the birth of a son to him. But we press on. We simply want to observe at this point that this is a priestly function. The priest was to minister in this service. The time of it was the morning and evening sacrifice. Our text in Exodus points out that it's, it was the same time when the menorah was tended. After burning all night, a priest would go in and he would take away the, um, uh, the waste products of the burning of the menorah, take away the ashes, trim the wicks, look to the uh, oil to make sure that it was sufficient so that the candles would always be burning. He would do the same thing in the evening. When that menorah was being tended, the service of incense was performed. So it's part of the morning and evening sacrifice, part of the morning and evening tending of the menorah. And interestingly enough, for Revelation, and, I, and I've been telling you throughout, I know that we've now been a long time in the early parts of Revelation, but I wanted you to see this. When the Lord Jesus Christ first appears to John in Revelation. What do we find Jesus Christ doing? He's tending to the churches, uh, the lampstand. So here we find the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter one in front of the menorah doing the priestly service. So here you've got a symbolic representation of the churches and through the agency through the flame of the Spirit shedding their light into the world. Revelation 2 and 3, we get the spiritual substance of that. How does the Lord Jesus Christ tend to the lampstand? How does he tend to the churches? He encourages them in their well-doing and in their gospel witnesses. And he purges them of the waste products of sin. He carries those things away so that they continue to burn and show their lights in the world. And now we ought not to be surprised at all that we find those that have been made kings and priests under the Most High God having in their hands bowls of incense for the performance of that service. This was part of the daily service, and as such, it was continuous and perpetual. This was a thing that was day in and day out. And this is very significant for us in the life of prayer. We'll return to that in a few minutes. I want to describe the action in two ways. We've set the scene for the action. But first, very basically, what has been prescribed is the burning of the incense. This incense was ignited it was placed in a bowl it was ignited and then it was set upon this golden altar and its sweet perfume would rise up uh, 
before the veil that led into the Holy of Holies. The Lord tells Moses in, in further detail that no strange incense was to be burned here. Now, there is an interesting contrast here. No other incense was ever to be used upon this altar, only this mixture. And this mixture was not to be used for anything else. So only this uh, mixture on this altar and this mixture was to only be used for this one only purpose. And you remember to use this uh, mixture for anything else was censured with excommunication, a cutting off from the people. So if you were in your home and decided you wanted to try to make this compound and burn it for your own personal use, you would be excommunicated for this. It's a grievous sin. The Lord goes on in Exodus chapter 30 and points out that this altar was not to be used for any other kind of altering. Nothing else was burned here. No sacrifice, no meat offering, no drink offering. Well, only an atonement for the altar was made one time a year on the Day of Atonement when blood was, uh, was placed upon the horns of this altar. But again, it was used only for this purpose. One purpose, incense, and only that incense, morning and evening. We do uh, get a further description in some other places that tell us more about this action. And so now, um, if you remember nothing else, just remember the simple view that the incense was burned upon this. But there was actually more to this action. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 is a very important chapter in all of the Old Testament. This is the day of atonement. It's uh, the description of its services. The day of atonement was uh, on the 10th day of the seventh month. It's probably getting on towards the end of our September or so when this uh, when this day would arrive on the Jewish calendar. I say it's an important chapter because this chapter is full of gospel light. Out of all of the holy days and of all the services on all of the holy days, in my own estimation, this is as full of gospel light as you will find anywhere. It seems that all of the things are brought together at one particular place and time to very clearly reveal the coming of Messiah and what he would do on behalf of his people. For our particular purposes this morning, we are going to look at only a handful of verses beginning with verse 11. This is the service of incense on this particular day. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, And shall make an atonement for himself and for his house. And shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. Here we have the atonement made for the priests. Remember what Paul makes of this in the epistle to the Hebrews. He says, how do we know that the Aaronic priesthood was not the ultimate priesthood 
How do we know that that priesthood was always inadequate? And as inadequate, was always pointing beyond itself to another priesthood, namely that priesthood which would be forever after the order of Melchizedek. And one of the inadequacies was the fact that these priests could never ultimately deal with the sins of others because they had the sin problem themselves. And so uh, Paul tells the Hebrew Christians, consider those ancient priests and their inadequacy because before they could offer up sin offerings for the people, they first had to have their own sins purged and dealt with. But not so with our Jesus, who needed no sin offering for himself but offered himself up once for all on behalf of his people. So again, even here in the uh, inadequacy of the Aaronic priesthood, as Paul makes use of it, it is full of gospel light, full of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, we're told that a, a sin offering is offered for Aaron and for the other priests. This would be on the brazen altar, the bronze altar in the courtyard. And verse 12, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Let's walk through the action here. Having offered a sin offering for himself and for the rest of the rest of the priests, Live coals would be taken from that, from that sin offering. So the burnt remains would be taken, still fiery. And they would place those coals inside uh, a censer. It's basically a bowl for holding these kinds of coals. The censer with the coal from the sin offering would be in one hand. And in his other hand, he would take the incense mixture. And with these two things, he would walk into the holy place. And on this particular day, he would enter into the Holy of Holies. This, so this part of the action was unique to this day. But uh, the part as far as taking the coal of the sin offering or the daily offering and the incense, this was every day and entering into the holy place. The incense would then be sprinkled upon that live coal. So here you've got... Um, the representation of the sin sacrifice and then the representation of the prayers of God's people and they're sprinkled upon that coal and the smoke rises up and fills the place. It's described here as covering the mercy seat. And this is very important. This was portrayed as being a life and death matter. The service had to be performed like this and only in this way or you would die. You remember that uh, this was no empty or idle threat. Uh, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 made bold to take 
the same incense mixture, but they took fire from another place. It didn't come off the uh, brazen altar. It came from another place. And they offered that incense upon that strange fire. And the Lord destroyed them by fire. This was portrayed as being a life and death matter. Very interesting to complete the image on the day of the of Holy of Holies. This blood was sprinkled before the ark. The text is a bit difficult, but it appears that some that the priest would sprinkle back to some out back towards the people. And then some towards the altar, probably not on it, probably on the on the ground before it. But you have the blood of sprinkling before the altar in the midst of this incense cloud that is portrayed as filling and covering the room. And the question is, what does this teach us about prayer? It teaches us quite a lot in a very vivid way concerning the spiritual nature of prayer. I want to now go back through... uh, the elements of setting and then the action and talk about what we learn, what lessons we can glean from the life of prayer. We start again with the place. It takes place in the holy place, the place of God's presence, the place of communion with God, that place of spiritual intimacy with God. I hope that you learn to think of our public prayers and your secret prayer closet in this very way. This is a spiritual, uh, this is a physical representation of the spiritual reality. This is the place of communion with God. When we meet in public to pray, it is very much, if you can see it in your mind's eyes, if we are standing beside that golden altar, hand in hand with our high priest in the very presence of God, but now with the veil removed. This is the spiritual reality that is being unfolded for, uh, for us and for our understanding. You should think also of your secret prayer closet as being uh, very much the same thing, where we go to commune with God. By way of application, this is a way of reinforcing to us that uh, God is a spirit and he will be worshipped in a spiritual way by way of communion. If I might return to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember he taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that God is not impressed in your prayers with the great multiplicity of words or simply going through a form and formula. That's perhaps one of the great ironies of the Lord's prayer. The Lord Jesus teaches his disciples when he teaches them that, that the Lord is not impressed with a great multiplicity of words, nor is he moved by a form of words as if he were going to be moved along by the force of your will or by the formula of a magical incantation. If you look at the... the, uh, The main thrust of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' point is consistent all the way throughout. He talks about many facets of religion, but the point is the same. This has always been about your hearts and a spiritual relationship with God. And that wasn't new in the time of the Lord Jesus. He goes through uh, the Ten Commandments. 
He goes through uh, various facets and elements of worship, uh, including prayer. And what he teaches throughout is what the Lord is interested in is your heart. He is a spiritual being. And if you are going to worship him, you are going to worship him in a spiritual manner and in truth. So we ought never to be content with warming these seats and imagining that because we were present physically that the Lord was much pleased with it. Or that the Lord was pleased because we went through some uh, religious exercises. The Lord is interested in the human heart. And uh, when we come, we engage Him in a spiritual manner. So much for the place we are told that this was to be performed only by the priests. Interestingly enough, in a broad way, we might say that uh, prayer is a priestly function that only properly belongs to those that have been made priests unto the Most High in their union with the one and great High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. All men have a duty to pray, but only these will find acceptance in prayer. You might say that the full duty for every single human individual is believing prayer. And only those who are united to the great high priest can perform this priestly function, which is believing prayer. In the sense that we see that all of the people of God, the ministers and the 24 they all have censers, and we see something here of an intimation of the priesthood of all believers. This was taught to us from the very beginning of the book, that the Lord Jesus Christ was to be greatly praised because he has made us kings and priests unto our God. And there is no one like Jesus Christ who can do such a thing. But inasmuch as there was also a limitation here, that only the priest could go into this holy place, we remember that he went in not just for himself, but he went in as the representative of all God's people. Don't forget the priestly garments. On his chest were twelve stones, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the, the uh, twelve names were written upon two onyx stones that were also upon his shoulders. Interpreters have looked at this and they've seen in this a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who in all of our services to God and particularly in our prayers bears us upon his shoulders, bears us up by his strength and bears us upon his heart. This is the image of the Lord Jesus Christ who in heavenly places is portrayed as ever living to make intercession for us. In other places of the scriptures, uh, the names of the elect are portrayed as being written upon the hands of our God. And he never forgets us. So when we think of entrance into that place, we can think of it in several different ways. That Jesus enters as our representative so that we might find acceptance for our prayers. But it's also fair to say in this gospel age that he also brings us in there. He takes us by the hand. And walks us up to the golden altar so that we can find acceptance in our union with him. With respect to time, we are taught that this is 
morning and evening, that the life of prayer is to be daily and perpetual. Paul teaches this when he says that we are to pray without ceasing. People find this very difficult to understand and they they wonder, how, how is it even possible to pray without ceasing? It speaks to a constant frame of prayerfulness in everything that we do in the course of a day. We have our set times of prayer. We, um, uh, Some of our families, no doubt, will have family worship morning and evening. We might have set times of prayer connected with our meals, which are altogether fitting. I hope that you all also preserve the time of secret fellowship with God in the prayer closet. And little children, if I might speak a word, never imagine that the times of family worship are a substitute or replacement for private and secret prayer. You must be praying to the Lord in private yourself as well. The morning and evening sacrifice teaches this, that we're to be in prayer continually. One of the disciplines that I have endeavored to develop and have done it at various times with more or less success, but I've attempted, attempted to attach prayer to the business of every item of every day. So when I wake up in the morning, this is something of what my day is like, and I begin to uh, my translation work in Matthew Poole, I started with a prayer upon my lips that the Lord would help me to act as a Christian as I do so. That it would not be a mere academic exercise, but a time of communion with God. That he would speak to me concerning spiritual truths. That he'd help me to separate truth from error. That he'd make the end product not only profitable for me, but for all of the people of God, and hopefully for, for our children. And so then I tried to continue in that same attitude and dis disposition Uh, when I move on uh, to uh, breakfast I pray over my food giving thanks for it and uh, praying that God would add his blessing to it so that it might give me strength for the day as I move to private worship that's uh, relatively obvious when I return for uh, the preparation of sermons I continue but I've also tried to cultivate the same sorts of things. I didn't do as much this year, but I spent a lot of time in the garden last year. And as I would tend the garden, I would pray that this would not just be the care of plants, but the care of my soul. And that it would be useful for the learning of spiritual lessons and make me more useful as a uh, pastor and making use of these, these simple tasks as images and shadows of divine things in the teaching of my children. And so I endeavor to move through the day. As I said, I've done this sometimes better and more consistently and sometimes worse. But during those seasons when I've done it uh, more consistently, I've known the value of it, the spiritual value of it. I've begun to touch upon what Paul meant by prayer without ceasing. And perhaps have come to know something of what was signified by the fact that morning and evening The incense was ever going up and that this was a perpetual thing. We now come to the action and and perhaps um, 
the spiritual heart and matter of the whole thing. We come up to a question. Why are our sinful prayers offered by our sinful lips accepted by a perfectly holy God who has preached and declared himself as one who will by no means clear the guilty. He will not fudge when it comes to his justice. So how is it that we and our prayers are going to find acceptance by a holy God? It starts not within the holy place, but out in the courtyard with a sin offering offered up and accepted on high. We must start there. The sin offering removes the guilt of the persons and the guilt of their prayers. But that's where it starts. In this way, um, God's uh, justice has been satisfied and we are brought into a reconciled state. But when you think of your prayers, you know that they are sinful and this is part of what it means when we say that we pray in Jesus name our larger catechism reminds us that this is no empty form of words and every time we utter it I hope that we utter it in more than just a signal that we're ending the prayer this is to take the Lord's name in vain to use empty words if we use the Lord's name as simply a signal to other people that we're getting ready to finish. When we say that we pray in Jesus' name, one of the things that we mean, and we'll talk some more about what we mean, is that we are leaning upon his sacrifice to take away the guilt of what we just did, sinfully and imperfectly, and that we do not expect uh, acceptance in any other way or in any other name. But we rest upon his sacrifice. Now remember that all that coal was taken in a censer together with the incense into that holy place. And you should always remember that your prayers are accepted because of that sacrifice offered and already accepted on your behalf. And then the sprinkling of the prayers the mixture of Christ's intercession with our imperfect prayers. The Lord Jesus Christ, we'll have this in the second sermon, but the Lord Jesus Christ has been risen again from the dead. Children, I hope you don't think of Jesus as rising again from the dead and then dying again or being buried away someplace on the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ is still alive in his human body. He is portrayed as being in heavenly places where he is constantly pleading the blood of the atonement on our behalf. And that the blood of the atonement is being portrayed there before the throne of grace mixed with his prayers, with his pleading. And do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ taught about his prayers? What he taught us about the prayers? He says, and the father always heareth me. God the Father, when he hears the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, never responds with a frown and never responds with a no. It's always yes, yes, yes. And Jesus is there uh, pleading not for himself, but as 
the representative of all of his people. Remember also, why is it that Christ's sacrifice and intercession is so precious in the eyes of the Father so that he always responds to it positively? Remember the golden altar. Just as gold is treated as the most precious commodity among men, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most precious thing in the eyes of the Father that can be imagined. He is usually described as being infinitely precious in the eyes of the Father. Ultimately and totally precious. Absolutely precious in the eyes of His Father. And so when these things are thought of as being, when the sacrifice and the intercession are thought of as being the work of that precious one, the Father grants all of the Son's aims and ends in that sacrifice and intercession. Yes, yes, yes. Whatever it is that you desire, yes. Ask of me the ends of the earth and I will grant it. Yes, yes, yes. This provides for us safety in the danger of worship. I know that um, frequently, and because we have been so long in assemblies for worship, that we don't think of it as being a dangerous thing. But worshiping the Most High God is a dangerous thing for fallen, sinful human beings. It's a dangerous thing for a sinner to be in the presence of absolute holiness. And remember, remember the priestly activity. We are told that if we enter into that place alone, it's death. It's the priestly activity to enter in there. And by extension, to take others with us. This death was threatened as we saw in Leviticus chapter 16. And remember the example of Nadab and Abihu. When they went into that place of communion, not trusting upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but upon something else, whatever else it might have been, they were destroyed by fire before the Lord. God in ancient times uh, did destroy human beings by worshiping him in a way that was not a gospel way. If they dared to make an approach in any other way, that hand in hand with the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and the once and for all sacrifice for his people, men were destroyed. And they became monuments and illustrations of a great spiritual reality. To worship the holy God of heaven is a dangerous thing. If we do it apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, the end of the matter will be death. And a greatly aggravated death. For those of us who have grown up hearing the gospel, we will say it would have been better for us never to have been born than to die with the aggravation of having been so much in the presence of the worshiping assembly. And we will know what fools we have been for all eternity. We will look upon the heathen also judged for his sins, but we'll see. He did not die in this same great folly with the gospel ringing in his ears. 
and having been in the worship assembly and all of our worship, all of our pretended worship, all of our false worship that we offered up in our own strength apart from the Lord Jesus Christ will be so many more accusations against our souls. And they will become worms that gnaw forever and never die. The troubling of the conscience. To worship God, there is only one way to do it in safety. And that's trusting in Christ's shed blood and in his intercession. And there's only one way to have the benefits of that. And that's to believe upon him. And indeed, we know that when we believe upon Jesus Christ, we do have ultimate safety. We will never come face to face with God as an angry judge, not ever again. But Sabbath day by Sabbath day, let us stir our faith so that we come with an active and lively faith to every new occasion of worship. We won't face God again as an angry judge, but we can find him a provoked father. You'll come mindful of my son or I'll chasten you sore and remind you of his great importance. The just shall live by faith. Not just in a time past, but day by day. We walk in this same faith. And finally, um, I do hope by this action we're taught something of a zeal for uh, God's worship and understand His zeal for His worship the way that He commanded it and prescribed it. What Nadab and Abihu did with his worship in that ancient time, although it might seem to be a small thing to us, was nothing less than a misrepresentation of the gospel, a perversion of the gospel. And we see God's great zeal that the gospel be preserved through the ordinances that he has prescribed to his people. All of God's worship has been purposefully designed to teach his people who he is, about Jesus Christ and about the way of salvation. And when you understand that, you'll see why he is so zealous that we not tamper with it, but to do it exactly as he commanded it, even when we don't fully understand. There's no doubt that we have much greater understanding of that service of incense than the ancients did. But if they were to grow in their understanding of the gospel and its significance, it, be, it was important that it be preserved exactly the way that it was. I remember at uh, Westminster Seminary, uh, my church history professor, Carl Truman, talked about some of the ways that this was done in the early church. Just one way. He said that based on the way that God had set up worship, it was inevitable that the church be pressed to mature reflection concerning the triune nature of God. It was inevitable. And you say, how so? Because the uh, baptismal formula was preserved pure and entire. We baptize in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And as they saw this performed week by week, month by month, and year by year, uh, reflection upon its meaning and significance was inevitable. What does it mean? And so they continue to reflect and their understanding of the nature, the triune nature of God grows and grows. Or when they would bless as God had commanded to bless, whether it be the threefold uh, 
blessing of Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, the Lord, the Lord, three times, or whether it be grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. When all three are addressed in that blessing and prayer, when grace and peace and fellowship are are sought from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as all being equally God, you can see how, how the worship would necessitate a mature reflection upon the triune God. And it preserved the true doctrine of God from many errors, even before the church had a full and mature articulation. The church responded to many things in this way. We're not altogether sure how to say it completely, but we're sure that's wrong. That is inconsistent with how we have always worshipped the Most High God. So it is very important that we preserve worship as it has come from the hands of God without adding to it and subtracting from it. And we ought to have a great zeal for this because the truths of the gospel are at stake. And perhaps even more so, we have seen from of old, God has a great zeal for the preservation of his worship and the precious truths that it contains and conveys to us. Let us pray together.